Well, good morning. Well, when we think of bravery and courage, we think of these big monumental tasks, these big moments in history where something grand or huge happened that shaped the course of history or changed the course of a nation. We think that we have to be someone who is grand or big or brave or filled with skill or from a heritage or a lineage or a legacy of people who were just people of courage and people that other people looked up to and respected, that we feel like we have to have this grand moment under the lights when everyone is watching and everyone is recording and a movie and documentary will be made about this very moment or this very act of courage or bravery. But truly, courage comes in all shapes and sizes. It happens in those everyday moments of life, of getting up and taking a step forward, of doing the right thing consistently over and over again when nobody's watching and when nobody's looking. Courage happens when you decide to go across the street and help someone. Courage happens when you decide when nobody else is watching that you're going to do the right thing at work when nobody else is. Courage is just simply doing the thing you know you're supposed to do even though you're scared of what might happen as a result of you doing that very thing. And we think it has to happen in these big moments, but it doesn't. It happens in those quiet moments day after day after day. And courage stands in resolve that says, no matter the uncertainty, no matter the fear, no matter the danger or the darkness that is over the threshold or across the line, I still stand unwavering, firm in my decision and in my faith and in my ability and skill to do the right thing every single time it's asked of me. And we look at these stories of people and we think that we have to have this grand moment this grand stage, but really there's something inside of us that pushes us and, and calls us forward into that unknown and into that uncertainty that says, go, take the step, do the thing that you know that God is leading you to. And in every story of bravery, in every, in every story of courage, in your life and those that we read about and those that stories are made of, this is the one thing that I want us to remember, that what compels them, what compels those people of bravery and courage is greater than what scares them. So for you, whatever is in you, whatever is driving, whatever the motivation is, whatever is pushing you forward, that is literally dragging you along, it is compelling you to make this decision, to stand in this moment, to do the thing that you know is the scariest thing you'll ever do in your life, that compulsion is greater than the fear of the unknown. It, it causes you to step forward when you don't know what you're going to be stepping into. It causes you to step out into the waves when you see a storm facing you. It causes you to step out into financial uncertainty even though you know you have to do it. It causes and compels and draws you out into that moment when everybody else is dragging you back and saying, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the next step looks like. You don't know what is going to happen to your family if you decide to do this. That thing that causes us and compels us to step forward has to be greater than the thing that scares us and, and causes fear in us if we want to act in moments of bravery and courage. And so what I want to do over the course of this series, over the course of the next few weeks, is I want to look back at people in our heritage and people in our faith that had those moments of bravery and courage when nobody was writing, nobody was making a movie, there were no lights under the stars, and, and nobody was setting up this grand moment for them to act in a way that would be recorded for all of history. They simply were doing the right thing that was in front of them, even though what was in front of them scared them to death. And I want to look at those because I want to tie their life with our life. Because sometimes we, as I said last week, we detach ourselves from history. We think that happened hundreds of years ago or that happened thousands of years ago. Or this is an ancient book or an ancient encyclopedia or an ancient story. And it might have been true then, but it's not true today. 
And we detach ourselves from the story of God thinking that he cannot do those things that he did in the past still today in the present. Because we think there was something special about those people and there was nothing special about those people. It's just special about the God that they chose to serve. And that is still true today. There's nothing special about the people in this room or in this world. It's just the special ability and power and gifting of the one whom we choose to follow and serve as well. And so I was reading this last week uh, about leadership again. I told you I'm just trying to learn as much as I can biblically and then also from a, a secular perspective as well just to see how God works and moves in all facets of life. And so as I was reading this book, this definition came up of courage uh, that I didn't plan for it to come up with, but this is what they were talking about this past week. It says it's the ability to face adversity without being overcome by fear, which is what we've said, which is what we know about courage, which is what we know about bravery. That there's this adversity in front of us that's hard, that's difficult, but we choose to do it anyway because we don't allow the fear to overcome us. And so before we move into this next part of our story or next part of our series, I want to take a moment because I I truly believe that we detach ourselves. Last week we looked at Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7, and many of you left going, that's an amazing story. That's an awesome man of God. I wish God would do that with me, but I really don't think God could do that in me. And so we remove ourselves. And so just for a moment, I want to ask us just to sit and to pray. If you want to close your eyes, you can. If you don't, that's perfectly fine as well. But you know for you, you know that step. You know the threshold you're standing at. And you know the step you need to take. And you have been held back. And you have been compelled by fear to stay where you are. But to act in a moment of bravery and courage means you are compelled by the one who is calling you to step out of the unknown and into the uncertain even if it causes great fear to overcome you. And so I just want to ask for a moment just to sit and to pray. You know what that is for you. You pray and ask God as we go through these next few moments that he would begin to shape and change your heart to compel you to take that step he's calling you to. Father, so many times we live in fear of the uncertain, the unknown. We live in fear of of physical, tangible things, of intangible things that may or may not happen to us. And as believers, we know that you have given us courage because we have your Holy Spirit who is the helper, who is the one who gives us the power to live faithfully and obediently and courageously, but sometimes, God, we we look at this circumstance in front of us, and we say, I don't know if I can, which truly, we're really saying, God, I don't know if you can, and so, Father, you've called us to, to various things, all of us to similar things, and that we're to be a light in this world, that we're to bring the gospel forth into our community, we're to make disciples of other people, but there are different ways that you've called us to live that out. In different seasons, different moments, and different facets of life. And God, we, we know in this moment for each of us what that is. We've just been pushing it back. We've been shoving it to the side. And Father, I pray this moment and throughout this series, as we study the men and women of our faith and our heritage, we would realize that they were just everyday normal people who displayed bravery and courage because they knew that you were with them. And they knew that no matter what happened to them physically, that you had promised to care for them eternally.
So, Father, help this study, help this time in your word shift our thinking from physical to spiritual, from temporary to eternal. Call us, compel us individually to be people, not to be brave in our own power and strength or just to show the world what we can do, but to be brave in the power of the Spirit, which really means that we're weak because when we are weak, you are strong. So, Father, give these men and women the courage to take a step forward, to do whatever it is you're calling them to do, so that you would be glorified, so that you would be honored, and so they would live faithfully, fully in who you have called them to be. God, we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week we studied a man named Stephen, as we said, and as we referenced him and talked about him, he talked about the Old Testament and about the past, and he went through a brief history of the Old Testament, which really brings us up to the point where we're going to study in Joshua chapter 2 today. So Stephen kind of set us on that path, and as we go back to that, at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 15, God comes to a man named Abraham. And God tells Abraham, I want you to move from where you are to a land that you do not know. So there's that stepping into the unknown and uncertain. There's that act of bravery and courage that Abraham was called to do. And he said, I want you to go to this place that you don't know, but I'll provide for you along the way. And when you are there, I'll let you know. And when you get there, in the course of getting there and being there, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to give you the land that I promised, and I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to make you a big nation. And Abraham's here, just this one man with his one family, thinking there's no way you can give me this nation out of, my, out of my family because I have no son to make descendants and to continue the lineage and heritage that would build this nation and this people. But God had promised Abraham this would come true for your people. And 400 years later, they're ready to take hold of this land. They've come out of a season of slavery in Egypt and they're ready to cross over into that land and they stand at that threshold. That moment that they have to make a decision into the unknown and the uncertain part of life. And instead, they live in disobedience and a lack of faith. And because of that disobedience, after 400 years of slavery, they're caused to wander in the wilderness for another 40 years. Circling this land and this place that should have taken them 40 days to enter into. It took them 40 years of wandering because of a lack of disobedience and a lack of faith. They decided, God, we don't know if you can do what you've told us you would do. We're not sure if you will do this thing that you have told Abraham that you would cause in our people. And they're standing there at that moment, and all they had to do was take a step of faith and take a step of courage. And instead, they decide, God, we're not sure. And so God says, okay, because of that lack of faith, instead of entering into this land that I had promised you, you're going to wander in a place of desert and wilderness and frustration and disappointment for 40 years. And so now as we get to Joshua 2, they're past that 40 years and they're back here at this threshold once again. And standing here at this moment, just being here took bravery and took courage on Joshua's part. Because when they wandered for 40 years, right before they were wandering at the threshold the very first time, Moses was the leader of the people. And he sent 12 spies into the land, this promised land that he was, he was telling them he was going to give them. Joshua was a young man at that point, and he was one of those spies. So the 12 spies go into the land, and in the land they see these giants. They see these huge people that they feel like they can't overcome. They see these cities that are fortified, and they're still just a small people. They've never really had much military training, and they've never had very many battles to earn confidence to believe that they could overcome the giants in the land. And so 10 of those spies come back to Moses and to the people, and they say, these people are giants, and we're just crickets in this place, and they're going to stomp on us, they're going to destroy us, and we don't know if God will do what he said he would do. Now, Joshua was one of two men, he and Caleb, 
who had the faith to say, God promised us, he will equip us, and he will fulfill that promise. But because the other 10 men did not have faith, which caused the rest of the people to not have faith, God put them in this wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And so after those 40 years, Moses has died and Joshua has taken the mantle of leadership within the people. And they're back here. And he knows because he's seen it firsthand. Joshua knows what's on the other side of that threshold. He knows what it means to take a step across. And he knows the giants that are facing them in the unknown and the uncertainty of this decision. And so God spends the very first chapter of Joshua in his story just encouraging and inciting bravery and courage inside of Joshua. And he repeats over and over and over again, Joshua, remember all that I've done in your past, all that I have promised to do in your present, and all that I will fulfill in the future. And so he spends chapter one just building this courage inside of him, and he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. And then in verse seven, he comes back again, and he says, Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. And then again, two verses later, he says, Joshua, in verse nine, be strong and courageous to the point where by the end of chapter one, the people who were once scared are repeating back to Joshua, hey, Joshua, we're with you. Be strong and courageous. God has built this courage inside of us. We're ready to step across where we weren't ready to step 40 years before. And so in chapter two, this is what Joshua does in verse one. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So Joshua does what every great leader does. Every great statistician, every great general, he sends people in to survey the land. He sends them in to gather intelligence. And he knows what this means because he knows these spies could come back like the other 10 and they could not come back filled with bravery and courage. He knows that they could come back and say, there's giants in the land. We don't know if we can do this. And so you would think, because Joshua's been there, he's experienced this before, he's going to take a little baby step, and he's going to send these two men, hey, go to the smallest city in Canaan, go to the smallest city in the promised land, so that you can see they're not as big as you think they are, they're not as fortified, they're not, they're not as strong and as many as we are. See, if they see this small little people, then these two spies would come back to the nation of Israel and go, oh, we got this, we can take care of that. That's not a problem. But that's not what Joshua does. He says, go survey the land, but especially I want you to go to Jericho. I want you to go into that place. And the significance of that is Jericho was the most fortified city in all the world at the time. So he sends them to the heart of the enemy. You talk about trying to incite bravery and courage. That's not a wise decision. You send them to the small fish that you can overcome, but Joshua knew they couldn't overcome and possess the land in their own power. They had to rely fully on God. So he goes, I want you to go to the heart of the enemy. I want you to find the biggest, baddest people and the biggest city you can find, and I want you to know that God's gonna help us overcome that. I want you to find that, and when you find that, you come back and you tell us, and we will step forward into this place, into the unknown that God has called us and sent us to. And so in the end of verse one, and they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. So as we go into Jericho, Jericho was the most idolatrous city in all the world. Not only was she the most fortified, the most influential, but she was the most idolatrous. She had the vilest forms of idolatry, which is worshiping anything but God, creating images, building relationships, chasing after money, whatever it is, anything but God that you think brings you value and worth, Jericho was top of the list. They were like Vegas on steroids, okay? I mean, they like, you know, it's just blowing up. And so Rahab is there, and they're worshiping this goddess, Ashtoreth, which is the goddess of the moon. And Rahab is a part of this culture. She's a harlot. She is filled with people around her who are filled with self-gratification. 
who are filled with just make you happy, you do you, and everybody else can figure everything out. And so as we get into this part of the story and you bring up Rahab, this harlot, a prostitute for her living, for her livelihood, when we think about bravery and courage, no one would expect her name to be included in Scripture. Because how could this harlot, this prostitute, this woman profiting off of other people, living in the vilest city and just going with the flow of the modern culture, how could God ever include her name, even use her? How could she display these acts of bravery and courage we're going to see out of her? Here's what I want you to see. I, I, I want you to remove the idea of harlot from your mind. Because that's not the descriptor I want to focus on. I don't want to focus on that part of Rahab's life. This is what I want you to think about because it, it affects you and it affects me. This is what I want you to think about when you think about Rahab. I want you to think about a girl who struggled to believe and a girl who people struggled to believe in. I want you to think about that because when you hear harlot, you think, oh, there's no way she's going to come to faith. There's no way she's going to believe. She's too far gone. She's done too many things. She's filled in this city that's just poured uh, idolatry into her, that's poured self-gratification into her. There's no way she can have this shift of belief, and there's no way anybody could expect anything great from her because look at her. She's just a harlot. So I want you to pull that descriptor of her out of your mind. And I just want you to think of her as a girl who struggled to believe because she didn't grow up with faith. She didn't grow up with scripture and the Old Testament and men and women of faith and grandparents of faith pouring into her. And at the same time, I want you to think that this is a girl that people are going to struggle to believe in because she's nobody. She's not worth anything. There's, there's nothing in her that is of value that anybody would expect anything from. And so the king hears, the king of Jericho hears that these spies have entered into his land. And he sends soldiers to Rahab's house, and a lot of men have gone in and out of Rahab's house, but he had heard that these two men had entered her house. And so he sends these soldiers to come and to find them so he can dispose of them and depose them and figure out what's going on and remove this threat from his city. And so here come these soldiers, this king who is the king of the, the most fortified, influential city in all the world, comes to little Rahab's house and says, Rahab, I know these men have come to you. I need them. I need you to give them to me. And in this instant, in a moment, and this is what happens in acts of bravery and courage. Sometimes you don't have all day to plan. And as we said last week, you can't act out of character consistently. You can do it in full people once or twice. But typically what comes out of you is what's already been put in you. And so Rahab has this instant momentary decision. What will she do because the king's soldiers are at her door? And so in verse, verse four, but the woman had taken these two men, these two spies and hid them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when the gate was about to close at dark, these two men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. But this is what happened. But she had brought them to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order uh, on the roof. And so here's this lady, Rahab, surrounded by this culture filled with pleasure, filled with self-gratification. Here she is with everybody telling you, you just be happy, you just take care of yourself, you do what you're supposed to do, don't worry about anybody else. And in this moment, as the flow of culture says, you take care of yourself, whatever it takes, Rahab chooses a different path. She chooses to go a different path than the rest of the culture, even though she knows that ultimately it probably will lead to her death. 
Because as soon as the king finds out that she deceived him and lied to him, her life will be over. Because remember, she's nobody. She's not anybody that believes in or puts any value in. And so here's where we get stuck, just just for a moment for all the religious people, because I know you're thinking, I just want to settle this debate for just a second. You're thinking, wait, is the Bible saying lying is okay? There are two different avenues you need to view the Bible from. One is prescriptive, which like a doctor gives you, prescribes, this is what you're supposed to do. And the second is descriptive. This is simply what took place. Make sense? One, God is prescribing, this is how you're supposed to act and live. The other is simply describing history and the story of someone's life and what happened in that moment. This in Rahab's life in this moment is the descriptive aspect of this story. It is simply describing what took place and what, took, what happened in this moment as Rahab decides to deceive her king and her country and chooses to take care of and, and find safety for these spies. Now the question is, not does the Bible condone lying, that's clearly it does not. The question is, why would this woman do this? Why would this woman in this culture of idolatry and self-gratification, of you take care of yourself and don't worry about anybody else, why would she not just go, yeah, here they are. They came to my house. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with my business. Don't mess with my livelihood. Don't, mess, don't take my life. Here they are. Just take them. Why? In all of her life, living in this culture, why would she have this shift? Why would she move this direction and take a different path from everybody else? It doesn't make sense. Because she would lose her life if the king finds out. And instead of me telling you why she chose the spies over her king and country, I'll let her tell you why she did. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord, God, the one true God, Yahweh, not the goddess of Asherah, the goddess of the moon, but I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water at the Red Sea, one of the things he did while they were leaving Egypt and coming to this land, before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, as soon as the people of my land heard what your God did on your behalf, our hearts melted, and we became fearful. You see, you, you thought you were fearful of stepping into the land. We were fearful that you would cross that threshold and step into our land. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Why would this woman choose the spies? Because she was struggling to believe. She was working through the process of faith. She was beginning to hear about this one true God who was over everything, sovereign over everything, who was good to his people and wanted to rescue and to save the world, those who would believe and trust in him. She was coming to this point of faith, and it was a process of her hearing story after story of other people secondhand because she did not have the benefit of growing up in a household of faith like you and me. She didn't have the benefit of hearing the stories, and actually not just hearing the stories, but being present and seeing God move like Joshua did. She wasn't there when God gave Moses the, the Ten Commandments or when God parted the Red Sea or when God saved them from destruction and God provided for them day after day as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. She didn't get to see it firsthand. 
She didn't have grandparents who told them story after story of God's faithfulness and provision in his people. All she had built into her was self-gratification. All she had built into her was don't worry about anybody else. All she had built into her was that you're your own God. You're the one you need to worry about. And you're the one you need to serve. Idolize yourself. There is no other person to idolize. That's all she had heard. And so in this moment, the reason she hid those spies, she probably would say at the next moment, I really don't know why I did it. Because she is struggling to move from this type of belief to having belief in the true God. See, we focus on the outward appearance. And God focuses on the heart. Because we as religious people, now again, I I love you, but I love challenging you as well. We as religious people focus on her mistake. Yeah, but she lied. Yeah, but how could she do that? How dare she lie to her king? That's not the right thing because scripture in the Bible says we're not supposed to lie. And what we miss in this moment, because we focus on the act, because we love to be teetotalers, we love to be holier than thou, we love to be high and mighty, we love to say we follow the rules all the time and following the rules all the time doesn't make you a Christian even though we think it does. We like to focus on her mistake, and we missed the explosion of faith that took place in her heart. I mean, God was exploding inside of her. She literally risked her own life for people she did not know. And we focus on that one mistake. Yeah, but, you know, how can God use her? Look what she did. She made a mistake. She lied. Here's what I want you to see, especially those who've grown up in church. Rahab's heart was being transformed into having belief and faith in the one true God, even if her actions didn't line up perfectly with what she was beginning to believe. You tell me the first day you put your faith in Christ that you became perfect. It didn't happen for any of us. It probably didn't happen for most of us this morning, right? Yeah, some heads nodding. There you go. And then it happened for us this morning. So instead of focusing on her lie, focus on the explosion of faith, the inward transformation that God was starting to build inside of her, that God was growing inside of her. And again, we as religious people go, well, God can't use her. She doesn't even have a proper job. She doesn't know how to act. He can't use her. God, Rahab is not just a harlot. Rahab is a foreshadow of you and me. Rahab is a picture of us because Rahab was the first one of, that was not an Israelite, that was not a Jew, that was accepted into the faith and into the family of God. Rahab was simply just like you and me, broken, sinful, messed up people who were given the opportunity to have this explosion of faith because the grace of God said, I want to choose to love you despite how you've acted in the past. So Rahab is simply a foreshadow of you and I. And so then in verse 12, as as they're talking, having this discussion, she begs and she pleads for her salvation and for her life. Now then, please swear to me, to the spies, please swear to me by the Lord, because she's starting to trust in him more fully than she ever has before. As I have dealt kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save me, that you will save me alive, my father and my mother, my brother and my sisters and all who belong to them, and you will deliver our lives from death. And so they said, when we come back into the land to provide you safety, this is what we want you to do. We want you to tie a scarlet cord in the window 
through which you will let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and your sisters, and your father in your in father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the door of your house into the street, his blood shall be his, on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. So Rahab begs and pleads, will you please save me and rescue me? This is more evidence of her faith beginning to build and grow. She's saying, I have nothing else to trust in. I'm trusting in you and your God. And I need him more than anything else in life. This faith is continuing and beginning to grow. And she's begging for salvation. Now, again, if you've studied scripture before and you know about the Old Testament... You see the tie that has happened. You see the connection. And if you've never studied before, this is one of the cool things that God does. So they tell her to lay this red cord out of her window and that everybody is supposed to stay in the house, in the safety and the shelter of the household. Well, back as as the people of God were beginning to leave Egypt, that 400 years of slavery they were existing in, God would bring them out of that land and he would use 10 plagues in Egypt to do that. And the last one was called the plague of the death angel. God would send the death angel to destroy all the Egyptians so that the Israelites could be made free. Now to do that, for them to be safe, they were to do something with a lamb, an unblemished lamb that they had. This unblemished lamb was perfect, it was beautiful, and they were to sacrifice this lamb the night before the Passover. And when they did, they were to take the blood of the lamb And they were to put it over the doorposts of their house. And they were to remain safely within the house. So that when the death angel came, it would see the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and know that everybody inside would be safe. And he would literally, the term Passover comes from, the death angel would pass over this family and they would be safe. Now, the significance of this is for Rahab to lay this red cord out and to remain in her father's house in safety. Just like the Israelites did 40 years before at the Passover. Now for Rahab and for us, this red cord was a symbol of the blood of the lamb that was shed, that was sacrificed. And this lamb was Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that anybody who said, I want to stay in the safety in the household of the Father of God, and I'm going to stay in his protection and provision, that Jesus would sacrifice his blood and my life, like the doorposts of the house, my life would be covered with the blood of the lamb and death would pass over me spiritually because I would enter into a relationship with God forever. What a beautiful, significant story. But even though God provides the grace for us to have faith, we must act on that faith. And so in verse 21, this is exactly what Rahab does. And she said, according to your words, so it be. So then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now tying that scarlet cord and laying it out the window made her an identifiable target. She was easy to see. It would have been known this probably is a house we need to go back and investigate. This is probably the place the spies left our city from and the place they may be coming back to. And so she made herself an identifiable target, but she didn't care because she said, from now on, I identify with the people of God and with God himself. Her faith had grown to this point where she says, I trust him fully. I trust him fully enough that my faith would be evident in my action. And she displayed this great courage despite the fear that stood in front of her. And again, because we separate and we detach ourselves from history and from scripture, we think, oh, that's a great story. God doesn't do that with me. 
God won't do that with me because I'm a person who's struggling to believe. And honestly, I'm a person who people struggle to believe in. Let me show you a real life, every day, in the moment story of what God is doing with one of our people to grow and build that faith, to have the courage to do what he's calling her to do. My name's Malia Hames, and I work at Alabama Mountain Lakes Tourist Association, and I'm the social media manager. The way I got started with the foster adopt process goes back to a deep desire that I've held ever since I was a little girl of wanting to get married and, and have my own children. Um, but God had other plans for me. I'm 46, about to be 47. I've never been married. Of course, I don't have my own children. And God has put me on a path that while I don't regret it, it's been, it's been quite different. Um, as many of you know, I adopted a homeless man a few years ago and created a, an apartment for him in my detached garage and he passed away in August. And also, as many of you know, I have a niece, Carly, who is 14 years old. And of course, with the teen years comes wanting to spend more time with your friends than you do with your aunt. And so it all kind of happened at one time. And I felt like God had made room in my life. And so as I prayed for all that room that was now in my life of not having to care for um, Johnny and then not having the time that I had with Carly, those desires to have my own family came back. And as I prayed and prayed about it, and I struggled with knowing what I know about God in my head, that head knowledge of knowing His promises, knowing that He's good, knowing that He has good for me. When you really want something, when you really desire something, it's a long way from your head to your heart. And so I struggled with, with that. And I recently started doing a Bible study by Lisa Turkhurst called Finding I Am. And one of the first sentences that she wrote in introducing the study was that she struggled with believing that God's promises were also for her. And I thought, ugh. I'm not alone. <laughs> I'm not a failure as a Christian because I have that struggle of connecting these two things. Um, but that it, it, it's a real struggle. And so I just began to pray about this and it led me to um, seek out information on how to be a foster mom. So as I was praying about what my purpose was for the new year, I felt this nudge to just find out information about how to become a foster mom. And so scared to death, I asked, I got the information, and I felt that next nudge, that next step of obedience to sign up for orientation. I signed up for orientation, and then it was just step after step of, you know, God asking me, just keep taking those steps sign up for the orientation, sign up for the classes, go to the classes. And there were obstacles throughout the journey. And, you know, I just didn't see sometimes any humanly way possible that, that it was going to work out, that it was going to happen. And every single time, God made a way where I didn't see a way. 
And so I went through the 10 weeks of classes, completed all that, completed the training, and then here comes the next obstacle of, <laughs> I live in an older home, this house was built in the 1930s, and I love it, but it, old homes have their issues, and one of the issues is that the windows wouldn't open. And I had a friend come and look, and they had been painted shut inside, outside, many times before I moved in, caulked shut everything. So the windows had to be replaced because that's one of the requirements, it's fire hazard. And I didn't freak out, because I thought, God did not bring me this far to leave me. So I get an estimate on the windows. It was $1,320. I thought, okay, I've saved $855 right now that I've got that I can use toward that, and the rest will just come. And so um, one day, just out of the blue, I get a card in the mail from a former boss and friend of mine, and I opened it up, and it was a check for $500. And I do math slowly, because I'm not a math person, but I thought 855, 500, that's $1,355. $1,320 was the quote. And I thought, isn't that just like God to give you what you need and then some extra? As I've gone on this journey these past several months and I've watched God make a way where I didn't see how there was a way, the distance between my head and my heart has definitely shrunk. And as I'm getting closer to having one of those deep desires of my heart fulfilled, the fear has changed to excitement. I'm nervous, of course, but the excitement level grows every day. It's pretty hard to deny, right? Not past, not history, not somebody who's special or different than me, but somebody who just said, here's this moment, this threshold that God is calling me to step across, even if it's uncertain and unknown and fearful, that I choose to do whatever God calls me to. And I want to tell you, God doesn't just affect you in those moments. He uses it to affect people around you. And so as the story continues, these two men came back from the nation of Israel and they came back into the land in verse 23. And these two men came down from the hills and they passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him everything that had happened, everything that she had told them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us, because of you. Her faith not only led to her salvation, but it led to the salvation of her family, and it incited bravery into a nation of people that was just waiting for that sign to step across and possess what God had promised them hundreds of years before. God not only used Rahab to shape his people's story, but he also included her as a part of the story as well. In Joshua chapter six, it goes on to tell us this about Rahab. That, but Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, so God held true to his promise. And she has lived in Israel. She's been included in this family to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And because of her faith, 
God included her into his people and into his story. Matthew chapter 1 tells us this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the lineage and heritage of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham, going all the way back to that moment with Abraham. And it continues in verse 5 and says this about the lineage and the heritage. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Rahab married into the people of God. And through her marriage, because of her faith, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Now, if you don't know Boaz, Boaz is known as the kinsman redeemer, which is a picture and a sign of what Christ would do for people. She is included in this heritage and the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David, the king, who was the sign and the picture of the king of Jesus Christ who would come to all people and all nations that we could be included because of the grace to have faith in him. That she is one of four women included in the genealogy of Jesus. That she married Salmon, who was of the tribe of Judah. She became Boaz's mother who gave birth to Obed, who gave birth to Jesse, who gave birth to David, and on and on and on until Jesus Christ. This woman who was a harlot and a prostitute who was struggling with belief and faith and people were struggling to believe in is included in the people and the family of God because of her courage and because of her faith. It goes on in James to talk about her, this woman that nobody believed in. James chapter two says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified because of her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. And then like we have the Hall of Faith, Hall of Fame for sports, there's a section in scripture called the Hall of Faith for people who had this bravery and courage. And she's included in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham the, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And because of her faith, because of her trust, because of this explosion of faith in her heart, because of this act of courage and bravery and obedience. She's a part of the lineage and the heritage of Jesus Christ. She's included into the family of God. And she's included in the hall of faith of men and women that we look to to say if we could just pattern our lives after them because they chased faithfully after God. This little girl who struggled to believe and this little girl who people struggle to believe in. That's your story. It's my story. God wants to grow your faith into courage. He wants to compel you and cause you to take steps and acts of bravery because your bravery is telling his story because you're learning to trust in him more than anything else. And the question is, will you let him grow your faith? Will you let him build you into this person? who he is making a brave man and woman who steps across the threshold into the unknown, into the uncertain, and you are not overcome by fear because you are compelled by faith. Will you be that man or woman of God? Stand with me because I want to pray for you as we sing to this God who is calling you to step out into the darkness. Father, I pray for these men and women. I pray for these men and women in these seats and these chairs in this room, our kids downstairs and people who are watching online today and in the future. God, I pray that you would build inside of them, you would incite inside of them this explosion of faith that they begin to trust you and lean on you and believe in you more than anything they've ever been told or ever, anything they ever choose to believe in and beyond themselves. That God, you would call them, you would compel them, you would move them across that threshold to take that step into the unknown, into the darkness, into the uncertainty, even if it means our ultimate physical 
physical death, that God, we would see your faithfulness in the past, we would feel the call in the present, and we would step into the future because we know that you have called us and you have equipped us and you have promised us that you would protect us faithfully, eternally, spiritually, because you include us into your family because of the grace of who you are, the sacrifice of Christ and the faith that we can have to believe and trust in you. That God, we would not just be people who show up to a building. We'd not just be people who live 80 years and earn money and gain property and build a family, that, but our family would leave a legacy and a story of faith for people who come to say, I wanna be like them. They're nothing special, they're nothing great, they're nothing amazing, but the one they choose to believe in has given them bravery and courage to step out into the darkness to do great things for him and for his glory. God, I pray that you would change our people today, that they would experience an explosion of faith like they never have before. That, God, you would call us to step across the threshold of the unknown because, God, you make us brave. And for that, we say thank you and we live faithfully for you. In Christ's name, we thank you and we pray. Amen.